Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have on Dan Nitro Clark. He's an American athlete, television personality, author, actor, and producer. He's best known for his role as Gladiator Nitro on the TV show American Gladiators. He's also a health and fitness expert and the creator of Gladiator Rock and Run. He's the author of Gladiator, A True Story of Roids, Rage, and Redemption, and the executive producer of the Netflix documentary, Muscles and Mayhem, an unauthorized story of American gladiators. Dan, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. I used to watch you as a, as a kid, and I saw you on TV, I saw you in uh, movies, TV, and like, man, just even watching a documentary, just like seeing that, it just kind of brought me back. And I'm just like, damn, okay, we got him as a guest. This is going to be awesome. So thanks again for coming on. Well, I appreciate you and uh, Leon and Alan, both of you both uh, having me on. It's excited, um, excited to do this. Uh, I did know that in our pre-talk, you had a different voice. And all of a sudden, we do the podcast and you put on your radio <laughs> yeah, yeah. voice. Yeah, do you notice that? Uh, he puts on his radio voice, yeah. his smooth and comforting voice. <laughs> yeah, I have like a phone voice and I, I don't know. I don't know. It comes on and off. I don't even notice when yeah, I do that. Well, <laughs> well, have you guys noticed though? I, I noticed. Uh, so I'm in Los Angeles, and there's this very popular walking spot off of, uh, off of Mulholland, and it's called Runyon Canyon. And you walk your dogs, and you see everybody from Hollywood. But it's the most interesting thing when a guy says hello to another man. He's like, "Yo, hey, bro, what you doing?" You know, he puffs up. Hey, then when yeah. he sees a you know a female that he knows, he's like, "Oh, hi, how you doing, man?" <laughs> right? And, yeah. and it's so interesting that that is so ingrained in us, right? Because if you look, to, if you look to the animal kingdom, you know the peacocks and the different animals they puff up to yeah. get the attention of a of a female, right? Or they mm -hmm. puff up big you know to see a one ape to the next ape before they encounter in battle to seem big and formidable and i'm so guilty of it every time i see one of my bros hey man what's up yeah. <laughs> you know? or, yeah. or when you see like a stranger and you're like oh hey what's good bro or like if they have to move hey watch out man if you've ever been to new york we do that here all the time yeah yeah you go deep right you go deep yeah. you go deep yeah. into that uh that alan smooth talking <laughs> register <laughs> <laughs> I gotta talk like that all the time. I gotta pay attention, you know. All right, so so let's get into this. So when I first saw the documentary, which was literally when it came out, so I think it was late June. Now I was like, damn man, we have to get Dan on the show. That was like, you know, he and I talked about it, and we were like, yo, we have to get him on the show. Documentary was phenomenal. And so as we get into this, I first want to read a quote of yours, which I really love, just to get our audience a little bit of a kind of sense of what the documentary is like. So Dan wrote, and this was an interview that you did. You wrote, it's not, you said, it's not uh, this VH1 behind the music retrospective of how it broke us and how we're sorry that we did it. Uh, let's see. Okay. Clark, who executive produced the five-year oh, five partner for Netflix with Kyle McCutcheon. Uh, and he said, it was a glorious time. We were all a bunch of misfits. We were this group of people from different walks of life who somehow came together and changed the face of TV and became the first reality stars, which is really big. All of us remember the times fondly. I don't regret one second of American Gladiators. So yeah, that was the thing that struck me about this documentary, that it wasn't a behind the music type documentary. I remember when first watching it, and I mean, admittedly, I didn't know much about what you guys were up to these days and i was thinking man this is gonna be a really sad fucking story like holy shit man you know kind of how, how you guys were mistreated yeah. maybe paychecks bounced you know merchandising deals didn't exactly work in your favor but i mean even though a lot of that was a part of it it's still a great success story and i would say it is the ultimate expression of the american dream so can you can we go kind of to your background and tell us a little bit about how how the show started how you became interested in it how you were kind of uh let's say pursued for it and why do you think it would be a good idea because there was nothing like it at the time okay, well let me unpack that a little bit remember when i was talking about runyon canyon where up over here off mulholland where you walk your dogs and you meet people and everybody from hollywood's there yeah. uh, i met my ex there and she just happened to be the creator and the producer of behind the music hmm. so when i was describing hmm. the show i wanted to give her a shout out because i did love that show and she did over 220 episodes of it uh, gay rosenthal and um uh, but I also knew that I didn't want to follow that format when I created the story arc for this, uh, for Muscles and Mayhem on, on Netflix, from being from seeing so many behind the musics, watching her work on them. Uh, one thing I wanted to do is I wanted it to highlight the people's pain to purpose story, because I usually feel like in every story where there's some success, 
it starts in a type of pain, a pain of not being seen, a pain of not having enough, a pain of wanting to right or wrong, a pain of being um, underestimated, underlooked. So I wanted to start that. I wanted this journey to uh, really have the full human experience that illuminated the human condition. And I also wanted it in the stories, gladiator stories that um, called for it to be triumphant. Mm-hmm. ESPN had just come out with a docu-series about the American gladiators. And it was really about more about the creator. And did he steal the idea from someone else? And when it showed the gladiators on that uh, ESPN documentary, uh, the gladiators, it had the three or four of them, and it just showed them as broken, as beaten, as run down, as saddened by the experience. So when we were doing this, I wanted to make sure to show people, because I know for a lot of people, and I humbly say this, the gladiators, you know, we were their heroes. We were these people they looked up to. And I wanted them to really take a nostalgic trip down memory lane to wherever they were when they saw or or experienced American Gladiators, whether it was young guys like you two guys over here where you might have been teenagers and you're doing it in the backyard with your brothers, or if it's somebody's younger who, you know, remembers, you know, the weekend when they used to watch it with their dad, it was that one family show they could watch together. Wherever you were in your life in the 90s when the Gladiators was on, we wanted that nostalgic factor to be a extra character in the room. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these things were really, really important when putting it together. And when Netflix, uh, appro- when we approached, my partner and I approached Netflix, he had read my book, uh, Kyle in uh, Canada. He had read my book, um, Gladiator, True Story of Roy's Rage Redemption. And, he, and that's how this whole idea started. He goes, Dan man, your book is so deep. I, I, it was just unbelievable. Some of the stories, the vulnerability, the things you overcame. And he said, I think there's a documentary series here. So when we went and pitched to Netflix, when I, it was more than, you know, hey, here we are. We're these guys on TV that <laughs> run around in you know, spandex, beat the crap out of you. And the biggest question of the day is, you know, do you shave your legs or not for aerodynamic performance? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I know that's a long answer uh, around um, what you're asking. I probably didn't answer shit to what you asked me to. <laughs> yeah, so the, so beginnings of, track. Yeah. Yeah, the, be- the beginnings of Gladiators, right? How did you become interested in it? And why did you guys think it was worth the risk? Why did I become interested in Gladiator? I don't quite understand the question. Yeah. So when you when the show when this show was pitched to you initially, so how did you become interested in it? Why did you think it was a good idea? The uh, documentary come... series. Oh, or I'm sorry. The original no, 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 TV no, no. The show, original, yeah, yeah, the original TV show. Yeah. Oh, got it. So the the original TV show, um, it wasn't pitched to us as you know American Gladiators. You're going to wear red, white, and blue spandex. You know, you're going to be on TV. You're going to be dolls. It was literally um a tryout at a park mm-hmm. uh here in los angeles and not like a nice park mm-hmm. it was like a park in the rough part of town where you're you know there's graffiti on the walls where you're walking over you know winos and you know people um uh who are laying there in the street so mm-hmm. when i got the audition i said it's here mm-hmm. in van eyes nothing good happens in van eyes mm-hmm. <laughs> and i went to that first audition and it was literally like was there they're looking for athletes who are good in front of the camera and i figured that you know I, i'm a good athlete and i always believed that i had that certain uh je ne sais quoi that little chutzpa little you know a little something different you know when I, when I remember i was playing football at san jose state i was a i was a d1 football player and i was a scholarship athlete but i was always just a little different you know, if, if you could have picked out one guy that would probably go to Hollywood, it would have been me. You know, I was with these, you know, I was a defensive lineman, outside linebackers with a bunch of these uh, corn-fed Nebraska boys, corn-fed San, corn-fed San Jose boys. And I was this guy back in the 80s who would walk, walked in with, you know, high top red Reebok tennis shoes, <laughs> you know, where I just stood out. It was just, these guys all looked at me like, what the hell is going on with this guy? And I remember uh, coach, uh, it was coach Elway. One time he called me up. That's uh, John Elway's dad, Jack Elway. And he said to me, Hey Clark, and this was on the whole team was there. It was after, uh, it was uh, after a practice. And he says, Clark, come here. 
He says, I want two pair of them red Reeboks. I want <laughs> one to shit on and I want one to cover them up with. <laughs> so I was always that guy that was just a, a little bit outside of the box. So I had this belief in myself that, um, you know, that I could do something in front of the camera. So when this audition came, it was just really simple stuff. You know, it was uh, going through tires, cones. I didn't think anything of it. So when they called me back and said, you had a call back, I would literally had my car packed. I was moving home because I'd run out of money and I got a page as I was driving away from Hollywood, which I've been there about nine months. See, I had a two-year-old son at the time. Mm -hmm. I had a mouth to feed. Uh, Mm -hmm. My football money, it was pretty much gone. And I was living on that money. And and, and I was, like I said, I got a, a page from my agent. And I pulled over the highway. I almost didn't answer it. And I went to a payphone. and I called him. I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, I got, you got a call back. And I said, for what? I, I says, I'm done. I'm driving home. My car's packed. He says, look, it's that thing, you know, this American gladiator. I didn't call it American gladiators. It's that thing where they're looking for athletes who are good in front of the camera. And I was like, oh, and he said, I said, I, I'm, I'm not going to go. I'm done. And he said, well, you know, it's on the lot at Universal Studios. And I'd never been on the lot. And I was like, it's on the lot. And I was like, oh, shit. So I said, okay, I hung up the phone. I drive my, literally I have a, a, my CJ7 Jeep full of stuff over the lot. And, and the guy's like, you can't park that thing here. So I park on the street. I run in there. And the last audition actually took place on the Universal Studios lot. And we still had no idea what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was it uh, Gemini uh, who kind of like picked out you and some of the other gladiators? Yeah, oh, that's revisionist yeah. history. I know it says oh, yeah. that in the docu series. That's revisionist history. He didn't pick anybody out. He's he's a good buddy of mine. But that's just you know it, it's interesting when you go back and you tell stories from twenty five thirty years ago, how everyone's perception, including mine, has changed. It was like that Japanese movie Roshiman, where oh. everyone was at the same event but from their point of view things change slightly mm-hmm. um you know and mike you know he's gemini 60 68 69 years old i don't know what kind of shit he remembers <laughs> you know mm-hmm. he played football for nine years plus he gladiated but no gemini didn't pick us out it was um the producers uh at that time and we had they had us come in the stage and they they uh, had these games and things rolled out there and uh I finished one thing where I knocked a guy out cold mm-hmm. um, and I thought, you know, that I got too carried away and they were going to fire me. Producer calls me over and uh, I said, Hey, I'm sorry. I-, I got carried away. You know, the paramedics are taking this guy out on a stretcher mm-hmm. and he says, I want you to keep getting carried away. And I said, I don't mm-hmm. understand. He said, you got the job kid. And that's how it started. We still didn't have an idea what it was. Because again, they had us in a sound stage, and all we were doing is tackling people on concrete. Mm-hmm. They, they showed nothing more. And I remember when he said you got the job, I had you know really basically one question. I just said, "What does it pay?" <laughs> you right. know. And he yeah. told me it pays six hundred and I think it was ninety two dollars an episode. There's thirteen episodes, so I did the math, roughly eight grand. Great. I said I'm in. You know, eight grand that uh, means I can keep my Hollywood dream alive for another you know six months. Mm-hmm. So it was just a math equation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so because we have pro wrestlers on in the past, I always focus on character development with them. But what's so interesting is for you guys, I mean, you became a little bit more authentic as the show went on. But initially, you guys actually were and resembled pro wrestlers, not in just, you know, the physicality of it and physically, but just in the way you guys kind of manifested your characters and just the way you guys were kind of sort of rageful and vengeful. And so I wonder in terms of just how you guys kind of expressed yourself and wanted to be, did they tell you some at some point to kind of tone it down? Or was it that in the, you guys at some point kind of realized, okay, this isn't really kind of getting over with the audience. Mm-hmm. It seems a little bit too cartoonish. Maybe we should be a little bit more sort of calm or authentic or, you know, however you would kind of conceive of it. But how did that change come about? Because initially it was kind of cool, especially with Gemini. He was like, you know, this sort of schizophrenic personality but then he kind of calmed down a bit if you watch the docuseries i think dick askin the president of samuel goldwyn tv who is a producer he tells the very very funny story of you know gemini just saying hey that uh, gemini split personality thing isn't working you know yeah. let's just knock it off and and mike gemini was just so relieved because it was really stupid you know, i'm gonna kick your ass let's go party let's go yeah, eat yeah. Yeah, i think yeah. was his was his yeah. funny line 
So I don't think they know knew in the beginning what they wanted, those first 13 episodes, what we call the dark ages. They didn't know what we wanted. We were simply like these little guinea pigs in some mad scientist, you know, creation running around this little maze. Uh, on the first audition, there were three characters on a sheet of paper they gave us, and they told us to pick a character, and then we're going to ask you questions in that character. I was born May 21st, so I was... I'm a Gemini. Hmm. So I was going to pick Gemini. Then big Mike kind of just, you know, jumped in front of me and said, hey, I'm Gemini. And I was <laughs> like, Dick, <laughs> you know? And I was, I looked down to the, there's Malibu surfer dude, you know, like, ah, that's not me. And the last character wasn't named Nitro. He was named Evander at that time. And they hmm. Evander loud, cocky, explosive, aggressive. You know, I said, oh, okay, I can do that. So when we went, and did our interviews on camera in character they started asking us questions you know like um what's your favorite movie you know i'm like terminator mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that and then i remember they asked me <laughs> this question they say what do you eat for dinner and i was like raw meat <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as i said that the camera the woman holding the camera said cut 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 that's enough thank you very much and she sends me home mm -hmm. and i i was sure that i didn't get the job and that's why when my agent called when I was leaving town. I was so shocked, you know, because I, I sounded like such a douche, right? What do you eat? Raw meat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I remember on that phone call when he told me about the, the callback, he said, oh, by the way, they loved your raw meat thing. So I wow. said, this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, for me, I always kept that character. You know, I always wanted him to be a little bit over the edge because I don't think he was phony in the first place where Mike was clearly being phony. Gemma mm -hmm. and I was. Uh, and also, I think on the production side, it was this idea, if we're going to be a real competition, mm -hmm. how do we distance ourselves from wrestling? If we have right. these larger than life characters that are wrestling like it's incongruent with a real sports competition and that's what it wanted to be billed at so they toned down the personalities uh of a lot of people but i still kept that edge because it was fun you know the idea uh psychologically was that and i had an old agent who repped a bunch of big movie stars who who gave me this idea he said hey dan you want to make it in hollywood as a leading man there's two things one you got to be that guy that girls want to get with Mm -hmm. and I was like, okay. And then you also have to be that guy that guys want to hang out with. And, and I was like, oh, so I kind of took Nitro as a guy who, you know, was kind of like, you know, especially in that day and age, you know, the the, the locker room dude, you know, was kind of cocky, arrogant, but you'd still like kind of like mm -hmm. a Maverick and Top Gun. And mm -hmm. then also, you know, I know it was hard to, you know, but I tried to be uh, appealing to the opposite sex as well. And what was interesting, you know, with Muscles and Mayhem on Netflix coming out, uh, I, I really never knew, you know, the female audience, how the character came across. You know, I, I don't know. To me, it was all about an athletic competition. I wasn't trying to be, you know, handsome. <laughs> you know, I was, I, you know what I mean? You're just, you're just who you are. And sure. um, the feedback after Muscles and Mayhem, I, I, I would say 50% of women reach out to me. Mm -hmm. And it's not you know, oh my God, you were, you know, you're this flaming hunk and, you know, sequence in spandex. Um, they reach out more because they said, I appreciate your vulnerability and your openness in the docu-series to talk about your brokenness, how you as a big, strong man had to raise your hand and get help to survive and to find happiness. Um, and it was, you know, really, really interesting to me to show that there was a strong female base and that their interest wasn't in a big, strong, tough guy mooing over competitors and contenders. It was in seeing someone that they grew up with who turned into an actualized human being. Mm. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah.
Yeah. So, and then the best part of it all is, so I would actually say that's it. And the best part of it all is there's this thinking that, okay, so you have tragedy in the beginning with your older brother and watching him pass away. And then you take that and you turn that into purpose and you turn that into sports and you turn that into something that kind of gives you a, a reason to wake up in the morning, a reason to do something, the sort of pursuit of success. And then as the documentary goes on and your story goes on, what you see is that, okay, maybe success isn't that thing. And then you find yourself not in exactly the same place, but not too far away from it. And then you find yourself alone. Uh, you mentioned that you were on a bender the night before and you were kind of wondering, you know, what does it all mean? So can you take us through that? So in the beginning now we have sports and we have sort of the, the purpose of, uh, again, you know, kind of competitiveness, the, the purpose of winning, especially right to success. And then as kind of time goes on, right, it sort of evolves into something else. So can you turn us, take us a little bit through that journey and through that trajectory? Yeah, Leon, let's, let's, let's unpack this and ask me questions we, as we go. So mm -hmm. when I was 10 years old, um, I had an older brother who was 12 years old yep. and he got into an electrical accident and it was just him and I alone. And he basically died in my arms. Yep. Um, that was a moment where, you know, that kind of trauma, it, I think that's a moment who shaped my life, which determined the path of who I would become. It could have gone many different ways. You know, for me, I had a, I have a Japanese mother, I'm half Japanese and the Japanese culture is, you know, well documented that they're not emotionally expressive, that okay. they don't talk about their emotions. Uh, I have a father who was a go hung, go, you know, American Marine who, you know, was very masculine, very tough, you know, also, yeah, he drank. So when I was a kid at 10 years old, I had just lost, you know, my hero. See, my older brother was bigger, stronger, faster, better looking, better athlete than I was. He was everything to me. Uh, he was also my protector uh, and I was so comfortable in his shadow. So when I lost him, I really had to figure a reactive strategy at 10 years old to survive. I think when trauma happens at a younger age, often the reaction is reactive. And, you know, as a human, you're trying to find how to survive and to get along. I didn't have one conversation with my mother or my father about my brother's death. It wasn't one that ever someone saying, hey, man, or hey, son, you know, you lost your brother. It's hard, you know, over time, you know, we got you, you know, it's going to be okay. This is going to hurt. I didn't have one. So I had to figure out how to be in the world. And for the first year or two, I was afraid. I was just this little scared, quiet kid. Because I think subconsciously, I thought if, you know, my older brother was the bigger, stronger one, and he could die, how in the hell am I safe? How in the hell can I make it? Mm -hmm. And then I started to find myself a little bit through sports. I started, um, and it didn't start off. I didn't start off as a good athlete. I started off as a, a terrible athlete and I started off boxing mm. You know, I got out and I boxed and the first boxing match I had a kid head butted me, my lip split open and I started to cry. <laughs> and I was like, boxing yeah. isn't for me. The mm. second athletic thing I tried, you know, I had a very great stepfather. Uh, yeah, I lived with my mom and my stepfather and he, he was, you know, maybe like I was 12, he got me into uh, baseball. I went to my baseball tryouts, a pop fly was hit way up in the air. I have my little glove out. I got it. I got it. I got it. The ball comes, hits me in the head. I start crying. So I think, damn, you know, what about football? And I said, you know what? With football, I'll have a helmet. I'll be protected. And also right. with football, you're covered in pads. And it was way for a way for a shy kid not to be seen. Mm -hmm. But then I was a chubby kid. And back then in Pop Warner football, you had to be a certain weight in order to play. And if you weren't under that weight for your age group, they put you like in a separate area on the sidelines where you were just like the kids that were too fat to play. Wow. So from a kid who wanted to hide, I ended up being highlighted as a kid whose jersey couldn't cover his belly, who was standing out there, who was too fat to play. Um I stuck around football for a couple of years. And by the time I was a freshman in high school, I just I had no success. Um, I was not playing. So like six or seven games into the season, I just came home and I told my mom and my stepdad over dinner. I said, I just quit. I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm not playing. Mm 
And um, yeah, that was okay. I, you you should have told us, you know, there's really not much conversation. I had my mind, my mind made up. And that's um, that uh, semester I went to live with my real father about 30, 40 minutes away. And my real dad was uh, had an office that he had a business he ran out of. And at night, there was a hypnotherapist who rented his office space. We became friends. We took a ski trip together with the hypnotherapist. And we were, uh, he started to talk to me about the power of the mind and the power of hypnosis, that when you vividly imagine something, that your mind can't tell the difference between that and a real experience. And he started to say, oh, yeah, they've done experiments with people under hypnosis, and they took a, like a writing pen and told them it was hot, and then they look at their finger, and it's red. Like the mind is that strong. So he taught me about creative visualization and we did a couple of sessions and the thing I wanted to be good at was football. So we'd go into these sessions and I would imagine myself, you know, on the football field, doing well, sacking the quarterback, my mom's cheering, make it very sensorially aware. Uh, this was at 14 years old. I read uh, Anthony Robbins, uh, unlimited power. And I wow. really started to use the power of my mind and the power of visualizations, any success I had, was first in my mind. And that next year, I went to play football again. I was now a sophomore. And using that tool and working my ass off, I went from zero, not playing, quitting, to the end of my sophomore year, I was the most valuable defensive player on the team. Wow. And that was the huge, huge transformation for me. And I remember the first time, you know, when a coach patted me on the back when I was a sophomore and said, good job, Clark. That was the first time, you know, anybody ever, ever complimented me. Oh. And it was just like, oh my God, that felt so good. I want that again, again. So that even pushed me to work harder because, you know, I think being seen was very, very important to me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be seen. I, I, I wanted to be seen. And I think when you're someone who's starving for, um, positive feedback for admiration for those things as a, as a young teenage boy, uh, I mean, I would have done anything. And so I, I continued to use visualization. I, I worked my ass off on the field and I ended up being a pretty decent, uh, you know, high school football player uh, using those tools. Well, and wow. So that's interesting. So that makes me think, so probably you weren't getting enough validation from your parents or, or any validation. Right. And then when you started getting it from all these other people, you know, from succeeding that kind of pushed you, made you hunger for more and more and more. Yeah. So validation was the word I was looking for. That's, that's right on Alan. So I had no validation. And when you don't get validation from uh, your parental figures, I think that's something you have a, a hunger for. And I think what happens, you know, what happened to me, I can, I'll speak about me is that, you know, I really chase that applause. Mm -hmm. I chase that adoration. And as a young man, I mistook that applause and adoration for love. Mm -hmm. They're clapping for me. Oh, they must love me. I'm fantastic. And when I got to gladiators uh, and we were at the height of our success I would say season three, I had everything I wanted. You know, I was on, you know, billboards. I was on the cover of magazines. You know, I was dating models. I, I had, you know, more money than I've ever had. You know, I bought a car cash, which is stupid investment. But at that time I didn't know. And I wish I would have bought a, you know, a couple of condos, but anyway, so I bought a car, I had everything I, I wanted in my life, but I realized that I wasn't happy. And that was just a strange thing. You know, I think everyone says, oh, my God, if I just had this, I would be happy. Well, I think it's also a blessing in disguise because I had everything at a young age and I wasn't happy. I wasn't mm -hmm. filled inside. I knew there was something missing. I was still self-medicating. I, I guess you just that's a fancy word for it. But I was partying like a rock star. You know, and, and you had a problem. No, I just like to drink and take drugs, <laughs> you know, right, and it didn't right. feel like a problem because it just felt like you were just going out and, and you know, uh, partying. You're, you're celebrating the spoils of your success. But then I started to wake up some mornings, you know, high out of my mind, lying on the floor, spit dribbling out of my mouth, and I was weeping. 
And that scared me. Mm-hmm. You know, you have fame, you have fortune, you have success, and you're crying. And that happened a few times. And then I just said, you know what? Something is off here. And it wasn't until one day when I was driving down Hollywood Boulevard on my Jeep that mm-hmm. I just spontaneously broke down in tears for no reason at all. I wasn't, you know, drinking or anything. I just, you know, pulled over and I started crying. And that was the moment that I had to raise my hand and say, look, I, I don't know what's wrong. I have everything I want, but I need to get help to figure this out. And therapy back then, you know, wasn't as uh, popular of a thing as it is now. Right. You know, therapy is what crazy people did. You know, oh God, they're going to therapy. Oh my God, what's wrong with him? Hey, stay away from him. He's in therapy. You know, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. or she is. It was this, it was, there was a really, there was a stigma to it. But I, I knew that I wasn't going to survive if I didn't get the help. So I started therapy, I think, in my like maybe 26, 27. And I've been a huge, you know, huge, huge advocate of it. And I still go now, um, you know, as, as uh, a, a way to help process my thoughts, to find places where I get stuck, to see if some interaction with somebody that I have doesn't quite sit with me or if I'm overreactive or if it bothers me more than I think I should I uh, use it for in my uh, interpersonal relationships I, I think it's um I think it's an important tool and uh, I'm a huge huge advocate of it yeah did it eventually bring you to a place where you could you know sort of feel happy you know instead of looking to the next thing to to make you happy I think happiness and this idea of searching for happiness is leading people down the wrong path. Mm. Happiness is a brief moment that we feel um, in our lives after something, you know, like a, a something happens, a short thing happiness happens. Mm. I, in my life, try to look more for fulfillment. Mm. You know, which I feel like I feel like happiness is in the you know, like it's in the mouth and the smile and the eyes where fulfillment goes down to, to the next area down to your heart and you feel it more in your stomach. You know, hey, I'm happy. But when you say I'm fulfilled, you know, it, it just goes deeper and you feel it in your body in a deeper place. And the fulfillment is more what I'm after and I try to create. And it's took, you know a long time to come up with that idea and to come up with the tools as a human being to work towards that. Because even though I've, you know, lifted, uh, lift the hood up of, so to speak, and looked under what's underneath there and done a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of reading. If you can, you know, see my wall over here, my walls are covered with books and it's all personal development, mm. you know, cause uh, I, I want to be the best human and the best man as I, that I can be. You know, I'm a father, I'm a, uh, I'm not a husband, we're not married, but I'm a partner, I have a life partner with uh, Kim, and she's fantastic, and I'm, I want to be a good friend, and I have a, I'm an uncle to 11 nieces and nephews, and I, I want to be the best, you know, human I can be, and I want to show up with, a, you know, with an open heart, and, you know, try to be, you know, authentic, and that is something where I have to keep constantly working on stripping away the layers of superficiality and you know what i think sometimes i want versus what i need you know what i think i want is you know a nicer car all the time a second nice car you know yeah. but that's not what i need um you know i had a heart attack 10 years ago and I, my second book f dying how cheating death kicked my ass into living learning loving and uh, my best life. Is that right? Is that t- did I say that? Mm-hmm. how cheating death kicked my ass into loving, learning and living my best life. Mm-hmm. I think the final lesson f- for at least at that time period was facing my mortality. Mm-hmm. When you face your mortality, things that were significant one second earlier, no longer have importance. You get to the core 
if you think you're going to die, if you think you have a limited time left, you get to the core of what's important to you in that moment. Before then, you know, I was still, I got back on that hamster wheel. It was, you know, the $5 million house in the Hollywood Hills. That was important to me. It was the two German cars in the driveway. It was the plaques on the wall. You know, those were the most important things to me, my achievements, you know, what was I doing, you know? And when I was in the emergency room and the doctor said they had to rush me to surgery for the heart attack. You know, I said to him, uh, you know, I'm a pretty much jovial guy. You know, I, said, I can paint everything. I just said, okay, yeah, but you, you got me, right? I, I'm going to make it, right? And he said, look, you've been having chest pain for two to three hours. You're having a heart attack. You know, we're going to get you into surgery as soon as possible. And he left the room. Wow. In that moment, I was looking for reassurance. Yay, we got you. Nitro's not dying on our table, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I didn't get it. And mm-hmm. it really scared me. And in that moment, you know, there were only two things that were important to me. One was I wanted the people I loved to know that I loved them. Two, I also wanted those people near me. And that's all that mattered. And so as I recovered from the heart attack the next day, I remembered that feeling and I remember what I wanted. I remembered what was most important to me was the people that I loved. So I rebuilt my life based upon those principles and other principles that I learned through that process of getting a second chance of living. And that's why I wrote that the book F Dying, because I think with a lot of things, when and, and I read and researched about this, is when you have a traumatic event or a life-changing event, you say you're going to change, you say you're going to do these things, but to be compliant over a long period of time becomes more and more difficult as you get further right. away from the event. Mm-hmm. You know, case and example, right? You got, you get a speeding ticket. Oh my God, I'm never speeding again. No, no, no. That, that next week you're driving under the speed limit. Two weeks later, you're at the speed limit. Three weeks, a month goes by, you're home. Six months go by, you're speeding again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the recovery from the heart attack, I felt myself wanting to start speeding again, going back to chasing success, to never being fulfilled, to not taking the moment to enjoy, you know, the simple moments of human and beauty and truth. So I said, you know what, I have to write these ideas down, these thoughts down, this manual for living. So I don't forget. Wow. And so that's how that book was born. It, it takes you from the, the heart attack, the moment of the heart. It's not about gladiators. It takes you from the moment of the heart attack where I, you know, I'm in the hospital, I think I'm going to die, to laying there in bed. You know, I, I remember when I, before the heart attack, you know, I, I had big goals, you know, climb Mount Everest. Then I'll really be somebody. Then I'll really be special. I'll really stand out, win an Oscar. You know, wow, they'll really love me then. You, you know, these external things to, to find fulfillment, to become whole inside. And I, the first day home from the hospital, my whole goal for that day was to walk downstairs from my upstairs bedroom, down 22 steps, down to my kitchen and not fucking die. Mm-hmm. That was the whole goal. And I remember walking because, you know, they say after a heart attack, don't lift anything heavy. Be careful of the stairs. Don't exert yourself. I remember walking down the stairs. I was, I was like oh, one step after the other step, just, just breathing. And like, am I okay? Am I okay? And I got all the way down to the kitchen. I sat in this little chair and the sun hit me. And I was just so happy over such a little thing because I reframed what happiness was and what I had to do to achieve that happiness. So when I talked about the moments of simple human beauty and truth, it was those moments, sitting there, taking a moment, appreciating yourself for something small, being present, feeling the sun hit the back of my head as I sat there th- through the window by the refrigerator and just appreciating being alive. So it, it that was probably, a heart attack was probably the biggest thing that really taught me as a man, you know, how I wanted to live. Before that, I was think it was more reactionary to mm-hmm. what happened to me, you know, uh, when I was young um, and how to fix that and how to survive. You know, I say sports, you know, they taught me, about life, but almost dying taught me how to live. 
Wow, I wow. love that so much. Yeah, so this is your story resonated with me so much. So for me, I came about it a little or from a little bit of a different perspective. So you obviously in athletics, so me in academia. I mean, I've told the story before on the podcast, but uh, I mean, I want to also share it now. So I there was a point in my life when I was in graduate school where I was highly suicidal. And so I remember the thinking was before I got into grad school, I was thinking, okay, this is this is going to make me happy. You know, I'm finally on the path somewhere. Uh, so we grew up dirt poor. Like we had virtually nothing. There was a point where my mom pretty much uh raised us on about $400 a month, which no matter wow. what they, yeah, yeah, which the, wow. no matter what month that is, there's no way that you can, I mean, I'm sorry, no matter what year that is, no, there's no real way for you to kind of survive. Uh, so we had a lot of family support, so that was pretty necessary. And so the thinking was once I finally get into graduate school and I'll finally be able to support myself, you know, I'll finally be happy. And then you get into this really hyper competitive environment and the thinking is, you know, okay, whatever, you'll scratch and claw, you know, you get a good GPA, you'll fight for an internship, you'll fight for a job. And then at some point you'll be happy. And then so even when you get all of those things, it still feels so empty. So first of all, not only are, is it because you're comp competing with people and a lot of us were kind of jealous of one another for various reasons, uh, but also on top of that, in, in itself, it's very short lasting. So when you get the thing that you're looking for, it's like you get it and then you're just sitting in a room by yourself and you're like, okay, cool. What now? Like, where does this actually get me? So when I remember I was thinking and then somebody was telling me, they were saying something along the lines of, well, you know, you have this budding career, you have so much going for you, you know, you, you might be going places, whatever, right? Uh, I remember thinking like, yeah, but it really doesn't feel like any of that's enough. So is it that I'm being ungrateful? Is it that, you know, I'm thinking, okay, this is the best that the universe can really do for me. And I'm just like not happy about it. So this is sort of my problem. Or is it that I'm kind of focusing on the wrong, on the wrong things? And if I am focusing on the wrong things, then what the hell is left? Because at that point, I really didn't know anything else. I didn't really know what to, what it was to really just have a loving relationship. Uh, I didn't really know what it was to actually be considerate and care about another person uh, just so deeply that you're putting your own kind of selfish needs aside. So for me at that point, as silly as it was, especially because I was trained to be a therapist, I really had no idea what the hell happiness consisted of. Yeah. And just to add a little bit to that, it's like, you know, there's this thing that we all have, right? Where it kind of goes in our brain, like, oh, I'll be happy when right? Mm -hmm. I'll be happy when this happens, when I get that achievement, when, you know, I meet this person, I get the perfect partner, I get this amount of money, this car, that kind of thing, right? And it's like, we, we train our brains constantly to say, okay, I'll be happy when I'll be happy when and then when you actually get that thing that you say you wanted, you're still, it's as if you trained your mind to still say, I'll be happy when so you can never enjoy and really be in the moment with those achievements. And then like, also part of, you know, oh, I'll be happy when is, you know, you're almost saying like, uh, when this thing happens, that's when I'll get the, maybe the, the love or the admiration or this, this special feeling. Right. And by teaching yourself that, I mean, it's just, I don't know, it, it's, it's very reactive, right? It's, it's not like you're coming from a place where you're kind of generating those emotions on your own. You're waiting for something to kind of uh, happen in order for you to feel that way, to give yourself permission to feel like that yeah. when we should be able to kind of do that at any moment, you know, or, or, or maybe I'm kind of ranting here. Well, just, so here's what yeah, I would add to that. So, yeah. So just one final thing I would say, you, I think we also equate status with love, or we at least think that status can supersede it. Where the thinking is once I get like, you know, Dan, you were talking about the adoration, it doesn't matter. I don't need love. I don't need to fight for anything deeper than that. This is going to be enough for me. Well, I think, you know, it goes deeper than that. I think it's hardwired into us. You know, I think ancestrally, as we were evolving, we had to strive to achieve to survive. Mm -hmm. And what I mean as, 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 a, as a pack, as whatever that incarnation, Cro-Magna man, or I might be getting it wrong, you know, back to cavemen, our ancestors, we had to go out and hunt for food. Right. And we had to have that desire to do it. So it's hardwired. When we got that food, we ate, and it was an immediate dopamine release. But then, in order to for the species, for us to survive, we had to have that desire to go back out again right? to survive. So I think there's something going on, you yeah. know, chemically in, in inside of us. Uh, and ancestrally that keeps us striving and striving and striving. And on the flip end, those of us who aren't striving, a lot of us are in a crisis where there's too much comfort right? and we aren't striving. So we're unhappy. We're overweight. 
we're sick, we're full of dis-ease because we aren't following that. So I think those are the two main things going on. There's that, you know, type A personality who's going out chasing, 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 who's never satisfied. And then there's that other, probably the larger fraction of the, uh, of the United States who isn't having movement in their life, who isn't striving for things. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of times that it may be a reason for the increase in, you know, the mental illness, the increase in drug addiction, the increase in suicides. I think that as humans, we need to be striving. We need to have purpose. We need to have a destination. Right. So I think it's, um, I think it's a really interesting thing to ponder upon, um, and think, I know for me, if I don't feel like I have some purpose, right. if I don't feel like I'm striving for something, if I don't feel like I'm putting my shoulder behind something that I believe in, uh, I'm not a happy person. Mm -hmm. I'm agitated. I, you know, I look, there's been, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily need to work. I love to work. Mm -hmm. I like to work. You know, people, the idea of laying on a beach all day, you know, eating, I, that, yeah, that yeah. is mm -hmm. not happiness to me. And, I you hate know, that too. Pick, yeah, yeah. I mean, for a couple hours on vacation, great. But if that's the rest of my life, no, I'm here to do something. I'm here to contribute something. You know, and for me, that continues to fuel me. And sometimes it's just something little, you know, like, like I started playing pickleball, mm -hmm. you know, like two years ago. And I just don't like to play. I want to learn the game. I want mm -hmm. to get better. I want to improve. You know what I mean? So I, I will sit there and, you know, watch videos. I'll go practice. I, I want to be moving forward in something in, in different areas of my life. And I want it to be measured because when I do that, I feel like I'm, I'm activating something in, in my brain that leads me to feel good. You know, it, it's interesting. So yeah, I know we have a lot of challenges with with this younger generation. And, you know, this is a society where everyone gets a trophy. It's just a time, you know, first and last. And I think it makes it hard to distinguish how you reward hard effort and work. Mm -hmm. So what I do with my stepson, he's he's 11. And, you know, we're in a position where if he wants something, we can give it to him. Oh, I need tennis shoes. No problem. You know, it's just, it's, it's when I was young, I don't know about you guys, you got shit when it was your birthday and Christmas. Yeah. 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 Right? Or when you were yeah. grades. Yep. Yeah. 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 Not even, yeah. Yeah. We, we didn't get grades. We got like, you, you wanted something, you need a new bike. It, it wasn't happening until Christmas, mm -hmm. right? You, you needed, you know, clothes. You got them before school or Christmas or yeah, your right. birthday, you yeah. know, but now it's, it's different. You know, we, we've, you know, worked hard for uh, most people can, uh, you know, the kid needs shoes. They just go buy the kid's shoes. The kid needs a, a ball. You go buy your ball. It's not wait a year. So with our son, you know, he wanted a new iPhone. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You, you don't need a phone. And mom is like, well, you know, he takes the bus over here to this, you know, school. And yeah, you know, what if we need to contact him or so we, we, you know, the bus drive. And I'm like, okay, you can have a phone, but he's got to earn it mm -hmm. because, when we're given things without earning them, number one, we don't understand our work ethic, but more importantly, we don't build self-esteem through achievement and effort. We don't learn to feel good about ourselves. Yeah. So I said to him, and I also wanted to teach him that he's capable of great things at a young age. He, I think he was actually, let me see, I think he was 11 at this time. I wanted to teach him he's, that there's a system for success. There's a system to do anything you want, and it's small daily action taken over time, and it's something measurable. It's something you write down. It's something you track. So we said, I said, here's what you do. I said, you want that phone? I'll buy it for you, but you have to do 5,000 push-ups. <laughs> and he's like, what? Nice. He's 11. Yeah, I know. Some parents are there listening, but oh my God, he's so cruel. He's 11. And I said, you got to do 5,000 push-ups. And he's like, oh, Dan, yeah, 5,000 push-ups. I'm 11. How am I going to do 5,000 push-ups? And I said, here's exactly how you're going to do it. I said, do you think, you know, you could do 25 push-ups throughout the day? Oh, mm -hmm. I can break them up? Yeah. 
you just got to get them done. You could do five right when you get out of bed. And he's a, he's a, he's an athlete. He goes, I can do five when you got out of bed. After breakfast, you can do five. You come home from school, you can do five. You know, so you can do, he goes, oh, I, I can, I, I can definitely do 25 throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So uh, on my whiteboard here in my office for projects, I wrote all the boxes to equal, you know, 25 to equal 5,000. And each day I said, when you do that push up, you're going to come mark it off. So you can mm -hmm. see your progress and how close you are. And the very end is your phone. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting because after about two weeks, he's like, do I have to only do 25 a day? Right. Cause he knew what the reward was. He saw the goal. And some days I had to tell him, his mom was like, Dan, he's not doing 250 pushups today. I don't care what, how much he asks, tell mm -hmm. him no. Right. But he built up this sense of value and self-esteem and expanded what he thought he was capable of by breaking it down into a system. Now mm -hmm. that kid right there had tremendous self-esteem. When he mm -hmm. comes across a problem now, I said, I'll be like, Hey dude, how do we get, how do we do it? Mm -hmm. We get our reps in and we do a little bit each day. Right. And don't worry about it. It'll take care of itself. Just show up and do the work. So that kid, you know, is going to go into this world, not with a big ego, but he's going to go into this world with the confidence that he can handle large, difficult tasks by breaking them down with a system. I love that. Yeah. And so by the way, wow. much of my work and my writing is actually based on pride and self-esteem. So what's so cool and so great is the fact that our ideas line up almost perfectly. So when I focus on self-esteem, I write about unhealthy and healthy self-esteem and also unhealthy and healthy perfectionism. So the thing a lot of people think a lot of times is that perfectionism in itself is a bad thing. That's not actually true. So it's only when it's absolute. So when the thinking is I have to be perfect everywhere all the time and to everyone. But when you think about perfectionism as an adaptation to your environment and slow slowly progressing and building and building and building and sort of chiseling away at the stone, then essentially what you're doing is you're kind of working toward a goal and not only just a goal, but a goal that kind of makes you feel better as you're tracking the progress. So what I love so much about this is that's exactly what you're doing with my son, with my son, with your son. And that's exactly what I would argue in my article, uh, well, articles, because I've written several of them. And so the thinking here is that when you're thinking of self-esteem, it's okay to have pride. There's such a thing as healthy pride and healthy pride comes from hard work. Healthy pride comes from achievement and obviously playing fairly. And so the idea is in this case, and this is what I'm picking up on, is what you're telling your son is that everybody can do this. It's not just this thing that makes you special, which is unhealthy. So the point is not so much about being special through some sort of, let's say, innate kind of goodness or innate specialness or intelligence or whatever, just qualities that you're born with. That's not the point. The point is it's if we're going to focus on being special, you're going to be special from, from uh, let's say, from moment to moment to moment in the sense that you're becoming more special than you were the day before. And what I love about that again is that you're not sort of differentiating yourself from people per se because that's not the point the point is you're differentiating your future self and your present self from a past self yeah plus what i just i really love is just that uh your stepson he was just able to kind of like that that thing where he wants to go beyond 25 push-ups mm -hmm. right i love that because that one he gets to see what he's really capable of right he gets to then kind of play around like whoa like not only can I do 25 push-ups throughout the day, if I want to do a hundred push-ups throughout the day, I could. And then wait, how old am I? Wait, where can this go? Where can I get to when I'm older? Right? Like that kind of thing. It, it's kind of a beautiful uh, approach. Right. And then, uh, like you said, if he takes that approach with other things, what, like, let's say school, right. Okay. There's this big test or there's, or there's this thing I want to do in the future. Well, now that he's able to kind of break it up into here's what I need to do today. Here's step one today. Right. Here's what I'll do tomorrow. And then it kind of builds and builds and builds. Right. And I don't know. I just love it. I just, even listening to the story just kind of puts a smile on your face. You're well, like, okay, that's like the right he, way. He plays the piano, uh, Alan. And when he has a new piece, that's hard. And I said, remember you did those push-ups? You didn't think you could do them, but you just did the reps every day. You get mm -hmm. your reps in. So that's kind of our saying around the house. Even for me, get the reps in, get the reps in. But I don't know if you can see this. This is the <laughs> picture in the board. Is that <laughs> very cool? Very five thousand cool. push-ups. Mm -hmm. And I, I made him a plaque with that picture, mm -hmm. with this picture wow. right here on it. So I'm holding up um, a picture of uh, Adrian, my stepson, and me standing in front of the whiteboard with the five thousand push-ups, and him with all the boxes clicked off that he means he accomplished it. And then we eventually, I got him a plaque and put him in the 5,000 push-up club. And it doesn't just have to be something physical. You know, I, what I really need to do is I need to come up something, a challenge for us, 
not even a physical a challenge for us, you know, whether it's the, and then put a little board on and get us on something to do something forward. Why are we yeah. holding this just for the kids? I think as adults, <laughs> we need this. I think adults as we need this as well. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And then, so going back to gladiators, as we kind of start wrapping up. Oh, is that what um, we're talking about? <laughs> I love it. So, yeah. So go, going back to, uh, to gladiators. Yeah. So what are some of the things and going back and looking back at it on the show, what are some of the life lessons that you learned that you feel like you can kind of distill to other people? And what do you think made it an authentic and unique experience for all of you? Are you talking now about the documentary series? No, 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 no. So yeah, yeah no, no. So the I actual, get confused here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. The actual show. No, no. American Gladiators, the show. Ask me the question again. Now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, okay. So what are some life lessons you feel you learned as being part of the show that you can distill onto others? And what do you think made it a unique experience for all of you? You know, looking back in retrospect, um, I can see how fleeting that fame is. Mm -hmm. um, I can also see that, you know, we were all a part of something at that time that felt really like nothing. You know, we're just these people running around, you know, in these outfits and uh, having a good time. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it became part of, pop culture history and it taught me that you can never really plan for some things you know it's like trying to make a viral video we don't know what's going to capture people's attention we don't know what's going to stick with people and i can also look back and say for all of us you know we were all um in my opinion kind of misfit misfits we all came from different walks of life we were all um races all ethnicities you know there, there was lgbtq before it was even you know hip or cool and you know we were kind of like the bad news bears of hollywood and i think through that show you know we we all found a place to belong mm -hmm. um you know we were part of something and i think that's something that will always be a part of us mm -hmm. um uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's hard. Cause it was, you know, it was a seven or eight year part of my life and a very formidable one, uh, and very important one, but it was, you know, just like any other portion of my life where I, I'm always looking to, you know, get life lessons and, uh, uh, you know, try to process them and, and dig through them and unpack them. So it was just, it was, it was an interesting period. Yeah. I'll say. And I mean, and would you say that you were kind of ready to let it go at that point when it was over? Yes, I, I had a, I had a deal with a studio, Warner Brothers, to you know do action movies, and I'd signed mm -hmm. a, a a contract and as a three picture deal. So I felt like my time was over. Um, when the show ended, I was happy, and it was interesting for the first five eight years. You know, I was kind of embarrassed of the show. Mm. Uh, you know, because, you know, it's become a cultural pop icon favorite. You know, you realize now how many people love the show. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I felt like kind of a, a, an ass. I was this guy, you know, walking around in shiny spandex, you know, a sequence. And, you know, I wanted to be an action star. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to, you know, uh, and I was, you know, thought I was going to have the Rocks career. You know, mm -hmm. they, they brought me in and said, Steven Seagal, we were tired of working with him. We want a new guy, I did martial arts and, and, uh, we said, you know, I did a fighting demo for them and it came out great. You know, I'll post it on my, on my, uh, Facebook and Instagram page. It's like a four minute, um, screen test where you know, I've got mm -hmm. the long hair walking down an alley and I kill five guys with a credit card. And, you know, I, thought, I thought that was, I was going to happen. And, you know, there was tremendous sadness, um, you know, when it, when it didn't happen, um, you know, and again, it took a long time to understand, you know, this need to be seen. And I talk about it in my book, Gladiator. Uh, um, it's really a book about a little kid whose brother died in his arms, who went into the world afraid, who put on all this muscle to protect a little kid inside who was scared. Cause the bigger I got, the, the more, um, safe I felt. 
but I realized later that that all that muscle was just a meat suit to protect me from the world. Right. But it also made me untouchable emotionally and intimately, you know, mm -hmm. with, with women, I, I would always say, you know, it was really easy to get, you know, but I was hard to hold on to mm -hmm. in any relationship because there was nothing there as a, as a man, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. it was just, you know, it was smoke and mirrors. It was long hair and muscle and flash. There was no substance to me because I'd never been in a, in a, an emotional relationship. You know, I, I, uh, like a intimate connected one. And it's taken me, you know, 25, 30 years to understand what that type of relationship looks like, you know, where you're intimate with somebody, where you share yourself, where you open up, where you let them in, you know, before relationships were just, you know, girls are fun, you know, you party, you hang out, you go eat, you drink and, oh, wait, 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 whoa, whoa. She, she's causing me a little grief here. Okay time to go get more some new fun mm -hmm. you know and i went through a lot of fun until i was like 32 or 33 and i just you know again this is this isn't working you know i talked with my therapist i, I i'm dating all these girls i just not happy i want to find it you know i want to find a wife so to speak i want to try true love mm -hmm. i went into my first marriage i was like you know i haven't tried that true love i keep hearing about it i'm gonna give it a go you know right. i probably need to say that didn't work out i was married for four or five years but, um, yeah, you know, just this whole experience of being a human being and, uh, um, you know, I, and that's why in my work and in the docuseries and in the books, uh, um, uh, I try to be as open, uh, as possible because I think something we're craving right now is authenticity, especially in this world of social media where everybody lives the perfect life and everything's fake and phony and yet you know i say no this is me and again the, to, to put a button on the book uh um the journey was in my therapist's office coming to the realization that the reason i worked so hard to be seen mm -hmm was because i was suffering from survivor's guilt of being the one who lived mm -hmm. instead of my older stronger better big brother i was working so hard because i was trying to prove that i was the one who that it was okay that i lived and he died and again, as a kid at 10 years old, you don't have the mental facility to, to, to keep able to handle it. Even in my 20s, I didn't handle it. It, right. it was, there's actually two movies. Uh, one was an older movie, Ordinary People. Uh, it won an Oscar and it was about uh, Timothy Hutton. And a similar thing happened. His older brother died and he was, you know, suicidal. And it happened, I think he was like 16. And his older brother was the bigger brother, the better brother, the stronger brother. And they got into a boating accident. And, um, his brother on a lake and, and, and his brother died and he survived and he felt horrible, horrible guilt. Why, why did I live? He should have lived. He was the bigger one, the stronger one. He was the one. And through the course of the movie with his therapist, Judd Hirsch, he realizes that the reason he survived was because he held onto the boat in the storm and his brother didn't. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And it was such epiphany. And I remember seeing that movie guys and I was just bawling my eyes out. Cause that was me. You know, that was me, but I was never able to articulate it in a way, you know, that I, I would understand until I saw it. And then also there was a movie called Ray about Ray Charles with Jamie, uh, Jamie Foxx yeah. and a similar story. Jamie Foxx was watching his brother uh, and his little brother drowned and he felt this tremendous guilt all of his life. And he, you know, got into addiction and drugs and eventually had to come to peace that he was suffering, you know, from survivor's guilt. So the book it goes through that. I know it seems like, uh, you know, it's just, it's hard to believe that a guy in spandex would write something like that, but the book is really about that human journey to finally finding some peace and fulfillment, the, the gladiator book. And I think that's why it was so, um, uh, such a good basis for the docu-series, even though we don't go that deep, but it, it let Netflix know that there was really a human story behind the spandex. Yeah.
And there was a very similar story with Johnny Cash as well. So his brother was the golden child and the one who was supposed to not maybe necessarily achieve fame, but a person who was supposed to be a, have become a pillar of his community. And my thinking was an under, in the way I understood it was Johnny Cash pretty much tried his entire life to live up to that. So I think the way he dealt with his survivor's bias was trying to, in the sense, not replace his brother, the person, but replace the expectations for him. And so there was this great moment, which wasn't so great, but it was, I guess, an important moment rather, where he's he finally gets Billy Graham in the house and then he tells his dad, hey, dad, like, haven't I done well? And the dad says, no, nah, you're still a piece of shit. So uh, uh, is that I, I didn't see. Is that in the book or movie Walk the Line? Yeah. So it's in Walk the Line. It's also in the recent documentary on Johnny Cash, too. I forgot the name of it. It just came out. I got to watch it. I got I to watch it now. No, you know what? I'll just cry. <laughs> if I want to literally, I'll just cry. You know, I'll watch it and I'll cry. It's a, you know, um, it's which is okay. You know, I've learned that. You know, maybe you know, big boys don't cry that men do, but you know, I, I just have to be uh, in that space where I want to go through that emotion. It was like that docu series, a documentary. You know, maybe eight ten years ago, it was called Gleason about mm -hmm. the football player at ALS. Have you guys seen yeah. that? Yep. 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 Oh my God. I just, I was looking for something to watch a few years ago, maybe six years ago when I was home and I was like, Oh, and I saw this thing called Gleason. It had all like 5,000 good, like five-star reviews. Mm -hmm. I was like, what is this thing? I'm looking at big movies. They don't have any. He said, Oh, it's a football player. I watch it. I am watching that thing. And about 20 minutes into it, I'm just like bawling, you know, like my just tears, like, Oh my God, you know? And it, it, it's just heartbreaking and then i told my my uh, kim she was in new york at the time i was like hey you got to watch this thing gleason i sent her an email i didn't say anything else she calls me like four hours later like why did you send that to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway. yeah yeah it's it's incredibly heartbreaking all right so uh alan final questions for dan before we wrap up oh yeah of course if we wanted to you know follow you follow your work and and of course uh buy your books uh where, where can we do that yeah so dan nitroclark.net dan nitroclark.net you could find me there and also at dan nitroclark i just got back on instagram you know i was off for like a year and a half because i got hacked and i just couldn't be bothered <laughs> but when the show came out netflix's pr arm was like you have to be on social media so mm -hmm. I, i'm back on on instagram and it's kind of fun but again it's uh it could be such a time suck. And then also Facebook, Dan Nitro Clark. Right now, I'm very active on it to support all the people who've reached out and said they watched Muscles of Mayhem. And it's it's been, you know, I think they it was uh, 15 million hours watched in the first 10 wow. days. Wow. I, I, sounds 15 million hours watched. And that's only with people with the accounts paying. Right. So if... You know, if Leon, you have the count and you and Alan watch it together, that, mm -hmm. that's two people. And everyone right. knows like four or five people watch it. So I would imagine there's a lot more than 15 million hours. So I'm very active on there just to, you know, reach out and connect with people who, you know, have supported us. So, uh, you know, me and the other gladiators over the years. So that's the the best place to find us. And you can also find the books there on my website or through Amazon. I love wow. And thank you so much for coming on, man. Not only do I appreciate the vulnerability and obviously all of your stories, but that documentary, the way you guys put it together was just phenomenal. One of my favorites of the year. It was awesome. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me on. And you guys, you know, keep up the work. You know, I think there's um, there's a, a, a lot of need out there, you know, for people to who are troubled, for people who can't quite figure out what to do. And they need they need guides. They need people to show them the way they they need help they need good honest authentic conversations so you two gentlemen keep up the good work too on seize the moment podcast absolutely Appreciate thank you so much dan we'll talk to you soon man take care cheers all right <laughs> well everyone if you'd like to follow us you can follow us at seize the moment podcast on facebook and on instagram on twitter where seize underscore podcast like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.